0: I break down a CBC podcast that claims Canada is racist. We look at the question, is white supremacy growing in the West? And what is a Nazi? Been an emotional week. So much hate. We're going to be talking about some tougher issues, so I want to prepare you for that. Before we get into that, I want to remind you to check out the website lorelei.semans.com. I am always adding things to that site, and we also have a store there right now, so please check that out. So I'm going to start. I'm going to play some clips from a CBC podcast. Now, this was posted originally. Uh, April 27th, 2016. But it was updated November 27th, 2018. So it was updated just before last Christmas. Now the reason I'm posting this today, so long after it was originally aired, is in high school. So civics classes are playing this clip. Civics classes in high school. So as we listen, I want you to think about what students in our high schools are learning about Canada. What are they learning about our police, about our laws? Remember, this is civics class in high school. So I'm going to be playing clips and then pausing it and talking about it. So here we go. Here is the beginning first clip.
1: Earlier this morning we heard the broad strokes of an Environics Institute survey which looked at what it's like to be Muslim in Canada. Some 600 Canadian Muslims as well as the wider public were polled and among the findings, young Canadian Muslims report higher levels of discrimination than their older counterparts. They're also somewhat less optimistic about how Muslims will be treated in this country in future. There's a lot to get into in this survey.
0: Okay, so let's just pause right there. So first of all, Young Muslim members report higher levels of discrimination than older Muslims. So right there, let's ask ourselves some questions. So why would that be? Well, maybe, maybe it's because Canada is actually a really great place. And Canadians are kind people who do not discriminate. So for years, Muslims were simply fellow Canadians who had just a different religion than the rest of us. And they were treated fairly and respectfully. Then 9-11. And after that followed a worldwide terrorism in the name of Islam. This was followed by Canadians being told they are not allowed to criticize the religion or to question it. Which was followed by stories here in Canada of honor killings. Then Canadians being told over and over and over again that we're all bad people, that Muslims hate being here, but they also keep coming and we're not allowed to stop them. But they hate them and they hate being here. So there could be maybe uh, a change in how Canadians are feeling about Islam. Now, later on, you're going to see um, that they have another reason that they give for the possibility of why older Muslims are not as upset as younger Muslims, and that reasoning is actually very interesting, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So let's replay the next clip. To
1: discuss the results, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Aziza Kanji, Programming Coordinator at the Cultural Center. Good morning.
2: Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining
1: us. So the question, in in some ways, that is asked by this is, what does it mean, and what is it like to be Muslim in Canada? How would you answer that question?
2: Mm -hmm. So I think what we see from the survey is that what it's like to be Muslim in Canada really depends, first of all, on your age, uh, where you're coming from. So for a lot of older Muslims uh, who are perhaps coming from um, countries with very repressive regimes, they were far more optimistic about what it's like to be Muslim in Canada and what the experience will be like for Muslims in Canada in the future. Whereas for younger Muslims, having grown up here, particularly um, after 9-11... Oh, growing... guys,
0: okay, so I'm going to pause there. So, this person says that older Muslims, they came from oppressive regimes. They came from oppressive countries. And they think Canada is great. But the Muslims who grew up in Canada and didn't live under those oppressive countries, um, they think Canada is horrible. Now, here's a question that the reporter doesn't ask. What political ideology made those countries oppressive? That's an interesting question that I think the reporter could have asked, but he just skipped right on over that. All right, so let's keep playing here. Up in,
2: ...in the national security state uh, with, uh, within which Islamophobia has been a very important part of justifying uh, national security law and policy
0: in Canada. Okay, so here she's saying young people here in Canada have grown up in a national security state. So does she mean they grew up in a country that protects its borders, that tries to make sure that we don't get bombed? Like, what exactly does that mean? And is she saying that it's bad that Canada is a national security state? And then she says that Islamophobia is part of our laws in Canada. Really? Like, what planet is she on? I'm going to do a whole other video in the future on this term, Islamophobia. But really, this is what she's saying so far, is that... um, that the youth here in Canada who are Muslim are not happy because Canada is a national security country and an Islamophobic country.
2: Canada, I think the experience of being Muslim is inseparable from the experience of Islamophobia, from stories like those of Meher Arar, uh, Omar Khadr, El-Mati,
0: um, El-Malki. Okay, so here she mentions Omar. So she is saying that it was Islamophobia that caused all of Omar's problems. Let's look into that. This guy, Omar, he was born in Toronto in 1987. Uh, His family traveled back and forth between Canada and the Middle East, and he actually spent most of his childhood in the Middle East, not in Canada. His family was close personal friends with Osama bin Laden. And you know, that's the guy who started Al-Qaeda, who's the terrorist group. Uh, In 1995, Omar's father was arrested in Pakistan for helping bomb the Egyptian embassy. His father was also named as a suspect in the plannings behind the 9-11 attacks. That's right. Omar's father was arrested as a suspect of being part of planning the 9-11 attacks. And after those attacks, Omar's father sent him to Afghanistan to work as a translator. There's videotapes of him making bombs. And it's pretty safe to assume that some of those bombs killed Canadian and American soldiers. And in the videotapes he's laughing and hoping his bombs are going to kill Canadians and Americans. So in 2002 at the age of 15 he's in a house that's having a firefight with American forces. Now Omar was not this little kid hiding in fear at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was active in this fight against the soldiers. He was the only survivor and it was his grenade that killed a medic and also blinded another American soldier. The American soldiers could have just killed Omar or even just left him there for dead because he was actually very badly injured and they didn't believe he was going to survive, but they saved his life and he was taken by a helicopter. They worked on him for over two hours until he was stable. And then they brought him to an American hospital and they actually treated him differently because he was a Canadian and because he was only 15 years old at the time. Now he was taken to Guantanamo and he was held there as a prisoner, but he was not technically a child soldier because international law says anyone 15 or over is not considered a child soldier. Now, He was taken because he had information. His family was a terrorist family. His brother was arrested in Pakistan by the CIA. His other brother and his father were actually killed fighting against Pakistani soldiers. Now you could say actually very easily and be correct that Omar was a victim of terrible parenting. I would agree with that completely. You could say he was a victim of an ideology of war and death being passed off as a religion. And I would agree with that as well. What you cannot say is that he was a victim of racism and bigotry. The only way you can say that um, what happened to Omar was because he was a Muslim, is if you said being a Muslim made him build bombs and move to Afghanistan to help people fighting against freedom. In that case, then yes, what happened to Omar was because he was a Muslim. But you can't say he was captured and put in prison just because he was a Muslim. That is beyond false. It's disgusting. It implies the soldiers that day were just out hunting random Muslims. It's beyond gross. If Omar was sorry for what he did, and if he showed any repentance at all, if he had walked away from the Islamist ideology, then maybe I would feel differently. But today he still says he did did nothing wrong. He still hates Canada. He still hates the West. He shows no remorse. And by the way, we gave him $10 million. Just as a little side note there. All right, let's continue listening here. I'll try not to go on so long in between the rest of the clips.
2: Northern, who all experienced very severe violations of their rights. Does that square
1: with your own... Uh, impressions about what it's like for you to be Mm -hmm.
2: Muslim in Canada? Islamophobia I think is experienced very differently for different parts of the Muslim population. Um, I'm not uh, very immediately visible as a Muslim. I don't wear the hijab uh, for example but we know that for Muslim women who do wear the hijab they are far more likely to be targeted uh, by hate.
0: Okay so here we notice that she doesn't actually wear the hijab. So a question the reporter could ask her what would happen to a young woman like yourself living in a Muslim country who didn't wear the hijab? Because if you were living in a Muslim country and you didn't wear the hijab and you were a nice young woman like this little girl is, you would get whipped, you would get put in prison, you would probably be killed. So here in Canada, you can walk around freely with no hijab, but you're going to talk about how bad Canada is. Now there's a story in Saudi Arabia about this girl's school that caught fire. And it was an all-girls school, so the girls had taken off their hijabs in the classrooms. So when the fire came, they tried to escape the school, but they didn't have their hijabs on. So the police actually pushed them back into the school and blocked the door so they couldn't get out. And they all burned to death because they didn't have a hijab on. Okay, so think about that crimes
2: um, in Toronto and in Canada, but I think we also make a mistake when we focus on these instances of interpersonal violence, of hate crimes, as the primary manifestation of Islamophobia in Canada. They're horrible for those who experience it, but I think we also need to look very carefully at the way that Islamophobia has been used to justify very repressive laws like Bill C-51.
0: Okay, so here's a couple of things here. First, she was talking about um, how there is Islamophobia towards women who do wear the hijab which is inaccurate so we have two stories of females being targeted for wearing hijab one turned out to be a person who was actually um, new to Canada herself and she knew what the hijab stood for so she was angry when she saw a woman wearing a hijab and tried to rip it off of her but she, the person doing that was actually somebody new to Canada The second was the story of a little girl who made the whole thing up. She just totally made up the whole thing. Now here she also talks about something called Bill C-51. And she says that that is a form of Islamophobia. So that's an anti-terrorism bill. And it means information can be passed between agencies when they're tracking terrorists. So unless the CBC is saying Muslims are terrorists then there's no way the Bill C-51 is hurting or is an Islamophobic... They're not hurting Muslims, and it's not an Islamophobic bill. Okay, let's keep going here.
2: Pieces of legislation like the Zero Tolerance for Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. Uh, and so for me, being a Muslim in Canada, the way that Muslim identity and the supposed problem with Muslims has been used to justify laws and policies...
0: Okay, here she's saying, because um, we had the barbaric act so Trudeau actually got rid of this but it was saying that certain practices were barbaric they used that term and couldn't be in Canada so these things that were barbaric were things like female genital mutilation and the other thing that was considered barbaric was honor killings so both female genital mutilation and honor killings are things that happen to young women like the girl talking here And they happen to them in the Muslim community. So for Canada to say those are barbaric, if you come here to Canada, you cannot do those two things, that is protecting the Muslim community and the girls in the Muslim community. That is not attacking them, protecting them, not attacking them.
2: Uh, like these is inseparable for uh for me for what it means to be muslim in canada one
1: of the things we were talking about earlier is is the generation gap and you've kind of hinted at that that Mm -hmm. um older muslims may feel different about life in canada than the younger generation most young people that were surveyed in this said that they face more discrimination than that older generation why do you think that is
2: um, I'm not surprised by that. I think we've seen in a lot of the national security discourse in this country how young Muslim men have really been represented as the problem population who needs to be targeted for uh, measures like counter-radicalization. And we've seen in the UK and the US particularly how very repressive that can be. How?
0: Alright, so here she's saying that it is Islamophobic uh, for the Canadian government to target Muslim communities for counter radicalization so this could have nothing to do with the fact that there is actually a serious problem with muslims who grew up in the west educated in the west becoming extremists like is she saying that that's not actually a problem just recently we learned that this guy named jamal uh, Rahamid was radicalized when he went to london and australia he was one of the bombers in sri lanka on easter sunday More than 6,000 people from the West have been radicalized and then traveled to join radicalized Muslims and fight against our soldiers. These are killers. They brutally attack communities. They kill men and women and children. They behead them, rape them, they crucify them. So Canadians are being radicalized. They are then traveling to dangerous areas that put their own lives at risk. So how could our government not be working to stop this? So now those people who survived they want to return and now we have this huge problem with all these ISIS fighters who want to return to Canada now. So obviously the government needs to do something about this. Now am I saying that only Muslim youth are being radicalized online? Absolutely not and later in the podcast we're going to talk about the problem of white supremacy and being radicalized on the internet. But both of these groups need to have Um, the government going and trying to make sure that this radicalization stops. It doesn't make it Islamophobia. That means that we have a problem and the government's trying to fix it.
2: It really represents certain uh, certain Muslims as uh, suspect populations who need to be surveilled, who need exceptional intervention in order to prevent them from becoming terrorists. You know, I remember a couple of years ago watching the CBC and there was a segment on it uh, labeled The Enemy Within, and it was talking about Muslims in Canada, and there was a clip of young Muslim men at a barbecue uh, putting ketchup on their burgers, and the voiceover was saying, you know, we don't know who among these will become terrorists. There's really no way of knowing, and I was thinking these are men who look who look like my brother or people who are my friends so how does something
0: like that okay so here she's saying um because they look like her or because they look like her brothers or look like her friends they can't possibly be terrorists well sorry but that's a terrible reason to say someone can't be a terrorist because they look like someone that you know that means nothing i mean um, if I went back to World War time, World War II time period and we looked at the Nazis that we were fighting, what if we'd said, well, you know what? Those Nazis over there, the Germans, they look like they could be my brother or they look like my friends. Therefore, Nazism can't be bad. I mean, that's ridiculous. It means absolutely nothing.
1: Shape one's um, impression of the country that they live in, the country that's their country too.
2: Mm-hmm. I think it produces a... A gap between what we see as being the promise of Canada which has multiculturalism um, enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms versus the experience of being told that you know maybe you're technically a Canadian but we've seen uh, several examples where when it really came down to it the rights of Muslim men were not protected by the government in the way that they should have been in cases like Omar Khadr for example Uh, so I
0: think okay so once again she's bringing up Omar again saying that he wasn't Treated like a real Canadian. So this is the guy we gave $10 million to. Really? So we have these men who are returning to Canada after spending years in the Middle East raping and killing people and the government's doing absolutely nothing about it. They're not arresting them when they come back to Canada. Nothing. They're doing nothing. They're making them read poetry. That's the most that they've done so far. So I guess it's true that they're not being treated the way the rest of Canadian men would be treated. Because if any other Canadian man went to another country and raped a bunch of people and murdered a bunch of people and then came back, we wouldn't be like, well, here's a poem to read. So I'm going to say she's accurate in saying they're not being treated like the rest of Canadian men.
2: Uh, for, uh, for many Muslims, the experience of being Muslim in Canada is one where the promises of multiculturalism don't really meet the reality of citizenship, which is very racialized. And I think this is true of many of all racialized populations in Canada, not just Muslims.
0: Okay, so here she is actually saying that in Canada we have different levels of citizenship based on race. This is a complete lie, a like 100% lie. First of all, Islam isn't a race. Just a reminder, it's an ideology. Second, there are no levels of citizenship. A black uh, Canadian is exactly the same as a white Canadian, is exactly the same as a Chinese Canadian. We do not have different levels of citizenship. Remember, this is being played in high school civics classes. This is what they're teaching them. This is absolutely garbage.
1: Things that stands out in this is that um Younger people who were surveyed said that they are more devout than older Muslim Canadians. Now we see a Mm -hmm. secularization, if I can put it that way, of wider society, where a lot of younger people seem to be stepping away Mm -hmm. from going to church or synagogue or mosque. Why why do you think within the Muslim community that there's a bit of a tension there, and there's a bit of a difference there? Mm
0: -hmm. So I wouldn't want to speak for anyone's experience. Okay, so here they're saying that the younger generation of Muslims are more devout. Now... Why would that be concerning to Canadians? Why would Canadians be worried about a more devout uh, Islam? And, and how are they more devout than their parents? So who is making them more devout? So their parents are Muslim, but they're more, um, you know, they, they are like a Western version of Muslim and that's they're peaceful and, and they just want to live amongst us and, and pray three times a day. But they just want to be just the same as everyone else. But now they have more devout version coming, but that's not coming from their parents. So who is making them more devout? Where are they getting that? And what? Just think for a little bit. about why that might be concerning to people? And go back a little bit here because I missed a little thing. Here we go. There's a bit of a difference there.
2: Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't want to speak for anyone's experiences other than myself.
0: So just. She doesn't want to speak for anyone other's experience other than herself. This entire podcast is her speaking about other people's experiences other than herself.
2: But I think that this phenomenon is inseparable from the way that Muslim identity has been stigmatized, has been demonized. And so claiming Muslim identity is really a way of rejecting uh, the demonization of Muslim identity that we see um, emanating not only in media quite uh, frequently, but also in government reports and reports from CSIS and RCMP and Public Safety Canada, which represent Muslim identity as, as almost a threat uh, to the nation.
0: All right, so here she's saying that the... CSIS and the RCMP and Public Safety Canada, they have reports that have voiced concerns about Islamists. Now, what reason would CSIS and the RCMP and the Public Safety Canada have for issuing these reports? Now, according to her, it's because they're just a bunch of bigoted people. They just they just randomly picked a religion of Islam for no reason at all. They just said, "I'm just going to pick a religion out of the hat," and uh, oh. We'll do the one where it's mostly brown people. That's Islam. There we go. We're going to say that's the one with the problem. And they just, where they just make up all the things in their report. Is that what she's saying? So the the reporter here doesn't even ask her any questions. Like, wait a minute. So you're telling me CSIS and the RCMP and Public Safety Canada have all issued reports saying that there is a problem with a growing, more radical Islamists amongst the youth in Canada. Should we maybe be concerned about that? But no, she just is. It's just because they're all bigoted.
2: And for me also, my relationship uh, to my Muslim identity is uh, very much related to the way that uh, Islam for me is very much a religion about social justice, about environmental justice, about racial justice, about uh, fighting for justice for indigenous people.
0: All right, so Islam is not a religion about social justice, environmental justice, fighting for indigenous people. I am in the process of reading through the, through the Quran right now. And I can tell you that that is not what it's about. There are sex slaves, there's beating your wives. And then let's talk about indigenous people. Well, Islam actually calls, um, for the killing of polytheists. So people who believe that they worship many gods and that the gods are actually in creation. So Islam believes there's one God and that God exists outside of creation. Whereas uh, the indigenous people in Canada believe that there's many gods and that those gods actually exist inside creation. So you have like your spirit wolf and those kinds of things. Islam actually teaches that you're supposed to kill those people and take their land. That is, I've, I've read it in the Quran, that's what's there. So don't try to tell me that you care about indigenous people
2: Um, in this land. And so I think for Muslims uh, facing racism, being able to draw on.
0: on Okay, Just a reminder, Islam is not a race. It's an ideology. There's people of all different races who fall under the category of Islam. And there's people from all of those same races that hate Islam. Islam is not a race.
2: Their Islamic identity and the Islamic tradition as a way for thinking about approaching these questions of justice is also an important component of that just
1: finally what is the value of a survey like this do you think to this country?
2: Uh, So for me, as an advocate for the Muslim community, there are many uh, parts of information uh, from the survey that are useful in challenging stereotypes about Muslims. For example, uh, the way that the survey uh, speaks to how many in the Muslim community don't see many Muslims as supporting uh, groups like Daesh. But I think that we also need to change the questions we ask about the Muslim community and not just the answers to the questions. So instead of just asking Muslims, well, do you support groups like Daesh? Questions in which the only form of violence that's made visible is violence committed by Muslims. Can we also bring other uh, forms of violence in the, in, into the picture? Can we also ask Muslims how they feel about civilians being uh, being killed by drones in Pakistan and Yemen? Those are also forms of violence that Muslims might have opinions about. In fact, do have very strong opinions about. Um, and so I think that we to really fight islamophobia we also need to change the questions that we ask about muslims and not just uh fighting stereotypes within the framework that's popularly used to understand muslims in the first place it's great to have you here
0: then all right so there you go in the end even the survey is islamophobic so basically what this podcast is saying is canada is is islamophobic country we have islamophobic laws terrorist families like omar's family are all victims We should not be trying to stop radicalization of extremists in the Muslim community. CSIS, the RCMP, and Public Safety Canada are all bigots. And the reports that indicate we have a problem are just made up and bigoted. And none of this is questioned. Good job, CBC. That's why you're not real news. And just a reminder, this is being taught in our schools. So here's some other facts that could probably add into that. Since 9-11, there has been 31,000 And 71 Islamic terrorist attacks with more than 12 each of those attacks had more than 12 casualties there have been 146,811 victims of terrorist attacks since 9-11 let's say that number again 146,811 victims of Islamic terrorist attacks since 9-11 now I want to clarify a few things First of all, clearly, uh, like uh, putting this out there, of course, I shouldn't have to say this, but clearly no one should be treating Muslim youth badly. In fact, we should be doing just the opposite. As Christians, we should be learning about the Muslim faith and we should be able to discuss the differences between Christianity and Islam. I have a series on my website right now, Islam versus Christianity, and I'm looking at the differences in our faith and I'm currently reading through the Quran myself so that I can have a better understanding of what Islam believes and I also am going to be doing a video coming up comparing the Bible and the Quran so we should be treating Muslim youth respectfully we should be learning about their religion so that is the first thing that I want to say secondly there is a growing white supremacy and also white nationalist groups in the west Now before we look into these groups and how they're growing and I'm going to be talking about what we need to do with these groups as parents especially, we need to make sure we have an accurate definition of them. So white supremacy is the belief that white people are better than any other race and should actually be ruling over them. That's white supremacy. White nationalists believe that the nation they are living in or that there should be a nation somewhere that is predominantly white and run by white people doesn't necessarily believe that white people are better, but that um, different nations should be predominantly one race. So, what is not white supremacy and what is not white nationalist is people who believe countries should have the right to protect their borders, or people who believe in limited government, or people who believe in low taxes if you have the belief in the right to criticize any and all religion, if you believe in free speech, including speech you do not agree with, including speech you think is disgusting, this is not white supremacy and this is not white nationalist. But why is the white supremacy and the white nationalist group growing? Well, first... That third group that I mentioned, people who just believe in protecting borders, believe in limited government, believe in low taxes, believe in the right to criticize religion. This group is being lumped in with the first two groups. So people who have these really gross racist views start to think that they're actually part of a larger group and that there's a large group of people who agree with them. They're being told by the media all the time that their viewpoint is becoming mainstream and acceptable. This is the opposite message that they should be getting. So the five people in Canada who had this opinion, they were just being ignored for years and they were isolated and living alone in their parents' basement. But in an attempt to get votes, the left has painted all people on the right as far right and have given these people a platform. Literally someone this week, who by the way works for our Canadian school system, told me that a Nazi is anyone who is anti-Jewish, anti-LGBT, anti-leftist, anti-black, anti-Roma, anti-feminist. So if you're anti-left, well that's everyone conservative. Then you're a Nazi. If you're anti-feminist, that's me. I think feminism is garbage and doesn't actually even care about women. If that's then, if you believe that, then you're a Nazi. And here's the problem: if you call everyone a Nazi, then it loses its meaning. It doesn't mean anything anymore. The second reason it's growing is online activity. So those groups like 4chan and H-CHAN and they are becoming places where these basement dwellers are finding communities. Now 4chan can be pretty funny sometimes and it's kind of a humorous online platform. And there's some really funny trolls who find it hilarious to create weird things and tie them to white nationalism and see how long it takes for the media to cover it and claim that that thing is now racist. So they've done this with this okay symbol, they've done this with milk, clowns now, a cartoon frog, And the media falls for it every time. The problem is people who enjoy this and find it kind of hilarious can end up moving from 4chan to Hchan. And that's where the jokes change to actually calling for killing. As parents, we need to be concerned about what sites our kids are on. So as parents, we need to not only worry about porn, we need to not only worry about bullying and sexting, we also need to worry about our kids being pulled into this racist ideology. One way to monitor your kids is to have circle. I'm going to post a link to that in the description. This is a great way to monitor what sites your children are visiting. Now earlier on, I said it's not racist or Islamophobic for the government to be monitoring sites. Young Muslim men go on that could be radicalizing them. The government should be monitoring these sites. They also should be paying attention to H-Chan and we're going to talk about H-Chan again a little bit later. But there's another group I've seen growing. There's been an anti-white movement lately that's been growing. To be more specific, anti-white males. And for young white men, there's no way for them to defend themselves. Literally, it's now racist to say it's okay to be white. How is that statement wrong exactly? It is actually okay to be white. That's how you were born. There's nothing you can do to change that. It's okay to be black. It's okay to be brown, and it's okay to be white. There are groups for black men to join and be proud of being black, and there's groups for every race except for white men. So where do young men look for groups? They end up finding them in places like H-Chan, and that's a serious problem. But there's another group, an anti-Semitic group that's not hidden in someone's basement. It's right out in front. New York Times ran a cartoon of Benjamin Netanyahu who was walking, Benjamin Netanyahu was a dog and was walking a blind Donald Trump. This is actually a copy of a Nazi propaganda cartoon that was published during Hitler's reign. In that cartoon, a dog who had the uh, Jewish face face, was leading a blind Churchill. The publicist of the cartoon was in fact a Nazi cartoon. So New York Times ended up apologizing for putting this cartoon out, but then the very next day they published another cartoon with Benjamin Netanyahu running down the hill with a selfie stick in one hand and the Ten Commandments in the other hand. In the original cartoon, Trump was running after him with the other tablet. However, the New York Times cut out Trump. I guess they thought it would make it less racist, but it's still the same message. And the message is that the Jews are controlling the West. This is the message. As the Democrats said recently, they said the Jews have hypnotized the world or they're controlling America with Benjamin Franklin's, as in they're buying them off. I get messages saying these exact same things every single time I do a pro-Israel podcast. These ideas are just completely mainstream now. They're in our media. They're in our schools. In a school about an hour from my house, there was a large poster saying that the Jews are using humans for scientific research in Israel. In our university, Jewish students are saying they no longer feel welcome and they actually do not feel safe anymore in the universities. And it's coming into our churches. The EMMC is an extremely anti-Israel, anti-Jewish religion now. Right on their website, they make claims that Israel is occupying land and the Jewish people should not be living in Israel. There are two ways the left tries to cover up their Jew hate. So one is by claiming they're not anti-Jew, they're just anti-Israel. So they want to have the Jews pushed out of Israel, they want to boycott products made in Israel, and they want labels put on products made in Israel. Now where have we seen this before in history? Where in history have people had the idea to label Jewish products, or not wanting to buy or sell anything Jewish, or wanting to kick Jews out of their home? I feel like there was a guy who did this before once in history. So that's one way the other way that the left tries to hide their jew hate is refusing to call out jew hate and simply calling out all hate so on tuesday i was on twitter and i called out this guy who tweeted a picture of the nazi symbol as a rising sun and then tagged ezra levant in it who is one of the most famous jews in canada When I said that's not cool, I was a racist person because the person tweeting it was brown. And clearly brown people can't be racist. So just to clarify, there's a lot of brown people in the world who hate Jews. Literally countries full of brown people who hate Jews. Countries full of brown people where Jews are not even allowed to enter the country because they're so hated. But then I was told Nazi isn't just someone who hates Jews. No. This is the tweet that I read earlier. So they said hating Jews is just a little part of being Nazi. What actual Nazism? I'm going to actually quote the tweet here. Nazi isn't just another word for anti-Jewish. Nazism is also anti-LGBT, anti-leftish, anti-Black, anti-Roma, anti-feminist, and anti-mixed race. Okay, so Nazis were definitely against Blacks and the LGBT, and for sure not a fan of mixed race, although to clarify... They only had a problem with Aryan race mixing. They didn't care if any of the other races mixed. But to say that if you're not a feminist or a leftist, you're a Nazi. So when I asked him to clarify what he meant by being a leftist, he said not being a socialist. So we're going to back up and come back to this in a little bit. But just think about that. So I'm calling out Jew hate. He said, no, not Jew hate, all hate. You can't just condemn hate against Jews. And this is what the left does. So they have two things. They say, no, no, I don't hate Jews. I just hate Israel. Or they won't call out hate against Jews unless you add in all this other stuff as well. You can't simply say, hey, how about we stop hating Jews? This brings me to the shooting this weekend at another synagogue. This shooter was, in fact, a young white man who was on H-Chan. And he wrote and posted his whole ideology on H-Chan before going into the synagogue with a gun. He shot a woman immediately and then he shot a rabbi. And then he went into a room full of children and he shot a man who was trying to escape carrying his nieces and getting them out of the way. He would have shot more, but there was two men who ran towards the shooter. And by the way, this is what needs to be done when there is a shooter. The men need to run towards the shooter. One of those men had a gun and one simply ran at him yelling, I'm going to kill you, you MF. I don't swear, so I'll just say MF. This actually shocked the gunman who was, you know, a coward. And so he ended up turning around and running. And if it wasn't for these two brave men who ran at the shooter, it would have been a lot worse. One of the stories that came out afterwards was about the family of the shooter and how it was basically just your normal family. They raised their kid just in a regular, normal way. He was this amazing musician. He was a great athlete. He lived with his parents while he was at university. He was on the Dean's list and he was studying nursing. His family never held any white supremacy views and they had always taught him to reject hate. They are completely shocked right now. They're refusing to help with their son's legal fees even though he might face the death penalty. This is where I want to again remind parents to pay attention to where your kids are when they're online. Because it appears this 19-year-old was radicalized quickly in just a few months. Thankfully, he actually had no idea how to use a gun. And when his gun jammed, he was trying to figure out how to reload it when the men rushed him and he turned around and fled. So who was blamed for all of this? Well, obviously Trump. Even though in his writing the shooter made this long list of why he hates Trump, and even though Trump is actually the most pro-Israel president in recent history, actually I'm going to say in all-time history, still must blame Trump. The shooter complained that Trump has been used by the Jews and that the Jews were controlling them, which by the way is exactly what the New York Times cartoon was saying which was published the day before this attack. But nope, Trump's fault. So right now we're going to double back to this idea of anyone who's not a socialist is a Nazi. And it's time for some history. So we learned in our school that socialism is far left and fascism is far right. Before we go any further, let's look at where the idea of left and right come from. During the French Revolution, the lords were seated on either the right or the left of the king. The lords who wanted the people to be independent from the king sat on the left and those loyal to the king sat on the right. This is where the idea of being left is about changing and the right is about staying where we are now. That's where that idea comes from. However, no one in Canada or the United States wants to have a king or queen, but that's where the idea started from. Before we jump into this also, let's look at what Karl Marx thought about Jews. Now remember, Karl Marx is the father of socialism and communism. So here's a quote from Karl Marx. What is the worldly religion of the Jew? Huckstering. What is his worldly God? Money. Money is the jealous God of Israel. In face of which no other God may exist. Money degrades all the gods of man. and turns them into commodities. The bill of exchange is the real God of the Jew. His God is only an illusionary bill of exchange. The commercial nationality of the Jew is a nationality of the merchant, of the man of money in general. That was from Karl Marx in his article, The Jewish Question, published in 1844. So Karl Marx, not really a fan of the Jews, thought the Jews were all about money and basically all the same stereotypes that people have about Jews today. So World War I came to an end, and we learn in school that the Western powers were winning, but for many Jewish people, it was not seen as a surrender to the West, but rather as a surrender to Jewry. Some blamed the capitalist Jews, who they said were controlling America and England. Others blamed the Marxist Jews, who they claimed were controlling Russia. Hitler was one of the people who blamed the Marxist Jews, by the way, and he said they stabbed them in the back by agreeing to sign treaties with Russia. At the age of 30, Adolf Hitler joined a group called the German Socialist Workers Party. And then the name was changed to the Germans Workers Party because there was this guy named Karl. He was a journalist and he said you should drop the word socialist because there was actually so many socialist parties at the time that it would just be really confusing for other groups. But it was a socialist party it eventually changed its name to the National Socialists of Germany and that would eventually be abbreviated to Nazis who eventually made their famous symbol that we all know. So Adolf originally actually joined the group to spy on it and he had handlers who worked uh, for the German army intelligence. So the world didn't really notice um, the Nazi party growing. It seemed really insignificant but this small party would eventually change the world forever. They were not the only socialist party though. Like I said, there was lots and lots of socialist parties at the time. It was very, very popular after World War I to be a socialist. By the end of World War I, Russia had completely given in to communism. There was lots of Germans who saw the Russian Revolution as a good thing and they wanted it in Germany. One of the other leading parties was the Social Democratic Party of Germany. So the National Socialist Party of Germany was different than all the rest of the socialist parties because they saw all those other socialist parties, they were just a bunch of globalists and they wanted socialism to be a worldwide ideology. So the National Socialist Party of Germany wanted the German race to dominate and they were more intrigued with the German race than about the ideology. So they said, hey, all these other socialist parties, their main thing is socialism. That They want the whole world to be socialist. We care basically about Germans. We don't care about the rest of the world. So we just want Germans to be socialist. So Adolf really fell in line with this group. He began. He stopped working as a spy and then in 1920 he got appointed as chief of propaganda. In Germany the, this little National Socialist Party began growing and they eventually ended up trying to take over the government. Then Adolf Hitler was thrown into prison. Um, it would have been good for the world if he just stayed there but he only spent a little bit of time in prison and while he was there he wrote this book called my struggle people know it as Mein Kampf in this book he blamed all the problems the poor people had on banks and business owners the banks and most of the businesses were owned and operated by Jewish people Hitler in his book showed that socialism was the only way to free the people of Germany and the only one standing in the way of the socialist utopia were the Jewish people this book became really popular and became um, because of that the National Socialist Party of Germany became really popular so meanwhile Hitler's party um, so this National Socialist Party of Germany or the Nazi party they ended up winning 12 seats in an election in 1928 so the party was still fairly insignificant but Hitler was now in government and becoming popular So five years later, the president of Germany ended up making Hitler the chancellor, which was the worst decision in political history. What we learned in school is that fascism was the opposite of socialism. In reality, we can see throughout history that every single socialist country ends up becoming a fascist country. All we have to do is look at Venezuela. So this week, this socialist country was actually driving over civilians with tanks and shooting people in the streets. These are people who are starving to death thanks to socialism. This is what happens. Socialism is not the opposite of fascism. Socialism just becomes fascism. And this was evident in the 1920s. But it really became a big thing in the 1930s when the National Socialist German Working Party ended up becoming a fascist party. But Hitler never called for fascism in his book Mein Kampf. He didn't call for fascism in any of his speeches. Nothing prior to 1930 was about fascism. Before the 1930s, everything he was calling for was socialism. But in the 1932 election, at that point, Hitler and the Nazi Party had seats in parliament and they had changed. In 1934, the president died and Hitler became the president of Germany. The National Socialist Party was now running Germany and the Nazis were in charge. The media ended up portraying um, the government as awesome. They showed a happy German company country. The world was absolutely perfect in Germany and socialism was wonderful. This is what the media was showing. Germany began to boast full employment high living standards. The media showed everyone was driving around in these Volkswagens. Now the media was giving away free schooling, free healthcare, even free sports for all the children. And on Sundays, all the children would go to their free sports club. They would have two hours of politics and then just have this big long day full of games. And the boys over 16 would get a free motorcycle. And everybody got free radios. Hitler brought in something called guaranteed income. Everyone should be equal. And so to get that way, people were taxed up to 70%. That way the money was taken from the rich and given to the poor, and then everyone would be equal. In nearby Austria, people were watching this media and wondering maybe they should embrace national socialism. And in 1938, Austria entered a great depression. Farmers and business owners were going completely broke and people were going door-to-door begging for food. At the same time, the media was showing images of Germany living just wonderfully on socialism. So Austria, with a 98% vote, voted to join Germany and allow the Nazi party to take over their country. Everyone under the Nazi party had to carry ID. And without your ID, you could not shop and you could not get on a bus. Schools could no longer say the Lord's Prayer at the start of the day. Everything had to be changed to Heil Hitler. All religious education was gone. Hitler also saw a problem with gun-related violence and gun accidents. So he had all the people register their guns. That way, criminals would be able to be caught. But a year later, Hitler said crimes were still on the rise and children on farms were being killed by accident, so he banned guns. Since guns were registered, the government could go home to home and take the guns. Hitler took over all the banks that had previously been run by the Jewish community, and he blamed all the financial problems on the Jewish people. Hitler took over the hospitals and developed a national health care system. Health and safety boards were set up, This made regulations for all the farmers and the businessmen. In 1939, Germany invaded Poland and World War II had officially started. So saying Hitler was right-wing and the opposite of socialism is clearly garbage. He was a fascist and he was a socialist. He was both. Hitler was a demon all of his own. Bernie Bernie Sanders... holds a lot of the same socialist views of Hitler. But Bernie Sanders is not Hitler, and Bernie Sanders is not a Nazi. Trump holds some of the same idea of wanting his country to be strong and believing his country is the best country in the world. But Trump is also not Hitler. Hitler was Hitler, and the Nazis were, and actually sadly are still, Nazis. But trying to change history... Or to decide what Nazis are today is just ignorant. Let's take a look at what Nazis believe today. And you can go on their website and you can look it up, which I did. So I'm going to read out some of their main points. Um, Each of these main points were a long paragraph. So I'm just going to sum it up in a couple of sentences. The first point, they want want an all-white national socialist America. More specifically... They want political life to be free of aliens and Jewish influence. But right there, the first paragraph, the word socialist hasn't gone anywhere. They still consider themselves a national socialist country. Number two, citizenship should not be given at birth. And you have to prove that you're worthy. And of course, you have to be white. The government is number three. The government will provide housing, medical care, and give generously to old people. But only white people. They want equality of opportunity and the state will take the health and the well-being of its members to be its main focus. This state will end poverty, class warfare, crime, sexual pervasions, drugs and of course though this is only for white people. So we could see the government has a lot of control. Four, firms will be confiscated by the government and no corporation can own a farm. The farms will then be given mortgage free to members of the Nazi party who have families. Five, mothers should stay home and take care of the house. So this is actually a breakaway from the Germany Nazi, which forced women to go work and they put their kids in daycare. So I'm wondering how this new Nazi party plans on brainwashing all the younger generation if they don't stick them in daycare at age one. But that's a breakaway, that's a difference. Okay, number six, the school system needs to teach racism and all kids have to have free sports programs. So that's the same as the previous Nazis. Number seven, the government should guarantee income. The government should control all the banks. All debts need to be forgiven. The government will run all utilities and will confiscate all corporate holdings profit sharings in all businesses must be given out to the people the government will give interest free loans for families farms, and small businessmen um, banks cannot make a profit they will end multicultural corporations obviously because everybody is white in this world um, the government will make sure there is zero unemployment So, number seven number eight They're actually huge environmentalists. There's this big long paragraph about honoring nature, developing sources of energy from the sun and the wind and the water, about not disturbing natural order. It's all your regular normal environmentalist stuff that everyone who is environmentalist believes. Number nine, the state will promote an Aryan culture and will pay for scientific research modern art and modern music for example rap will be outlawed that's actually a quote so that's like the only for example that they give is rap no rap under the nazis um the government will be responsible for making sure that all art is good and the government is going to be the one who sets the standards for what is good okay lots of government control here under nazis number 10 the military will withdraw from all the wars they're fighting and stay in their own country and protect the border. Number 11, white people will have the right to have guns. So everybody else, no guns, just white people. Number 12, um, there's this whole section here, number 12 on eugenics. Anyone with any defects or any impure blood has to be eliminated from the community. Number 13, the government will control religion. All right, so the for the person, who is saying what Nazis are and telling me what Nazis are, you can actually just read up what Nazis say about themselves and what they stand for. I would say it sounds like the KKK and socialists had a baby. It would be this party. It actually actually kind of sounds a lot like the Democrat party back when they still had the KKK. But I'm not saying that the Democrat Party today is Nazis. I'm just saying back in history, this would probably be pretty similar. Um, They do hold a lot of the same viewpoints as the Democrat Party when the Democrat Party also had the KKK. Okay, so what is a Nazi? A Nazi is basically a racist socialist who want to run the country like a fascist. Now, what if, this is an interesting question, What if you want to be a Nazi, but you're not white? Well, there's actually this whole section on the website for people who want to be Nazis, but they're not white. It's actually kind of hilarious that they think that this is a thing, that there's non-white people who want to be Nazis. So I'm actually going to read to you this whole paragraph because I find it kind of funny. Okay. The American Nazi Party gets regular emails from non-whites Who sympathize with our struggle and who have been just as exploited and mistreated by the Judeo capitalist system as the white working class. I'm gonna guess they don't actually get a ton of emails from non white sympathizers. Pretty sure that that's not true. Okay, I'm gonna keep reading. National Socialism, hmm, let's read that again. National Socialism believes that each race should be empowered to govern themselves in their own nation, as they seem fit, without any outside power interfering. The infinite greed of the corrupt government seeks to push us all into poverty and financial slavery. They are a threat to the livelihood of all people. So you can see right here in this paragraph, they consider that the Nazi party today, not 1930s, today, consider themselves a National Socialist Party. The American Nazi Party has now decided to offer a means for non-whites to aid in our struggle. If you are interested, please fill out the form below and return it with a minimum donation of $10 and then you will receive a one-year subscription to our hard copy print publication, The White Worker. As a sympathizer, you will not be eligible to attend any meetings or to be on any conference calls or other inner party events. But in addition to financial support, there are other ways you can assist our efforts. So this is a paragraph I read from their website. Uh, So if you're not white, you can give us money, but you can't be part of our group. It's kind of weird. All right, so question I always ask, what do we do as Christians? Well, we stay away from Nazism, just in case that wasn't a given already don't be a Nazi if you're a Christian. As parents though, we need to pay attention to where our kids are going online. We need to talk about this stuff with them. But most importantly, we need to remember what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. That doesn't mean he loved the planet. God didn't come here to save baby dolphins. This means the people in the world. All of it. Black, the white, the brown, the capitalist, the communist, the environmentalist, the Islamist, the poor, the rich, the world. For God so loved the world. And how did he show his love? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, once again, whoever, all of us, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life For God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God created the world, and God created the people in the world, and he loves all of us. But we have turned away from him and gone our own way, and sin has separated us from God. Jesus is God. He came to earth as the Son of Man to be a man, to walk and talk and feel the pain of being a man, and then to give up his life for us. He didn't stay dead, though. He came back to life three days later and he wants all of us, every single race, to be with him forever. We had to remember that as Christians, our main goal is to make sure everyone has heard the story of Jesus Christ. Our main goal is to show his love to the world. Our main goal is not political. It's not for us to make sure our race is the most powerful race. That is not from God. If that is any race, whether you are a black Christian or a brown Christian or a white Christian, your goal is not to promote your race. Your goal is to promote God. Our goal is to show the world the love of Jesus and make sure they have heard how they can have their sins forgiven and how they can be made right with God. By admitting their sinners, by asking Jesus to forgive us, and by trusting that Jesus is God and He alone can save us. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. For more podcast videos and blogs, go to lauraleesiemens.com and I'll see you next week.